I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. The experience of going to get Botox or going to get, you know, a filler treatment done, it was not something you looked forward to doing. There was nothing about the experience that felt aspirational or exciting. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we chat with Nikki Levy, founder and CEO of Alchemy 43, a group of aesthetics bars that specialize in cosmetic microtreatments. As a lifelong fan of the beauty industry, Alchemy 43 was created when Nikki saw a market opportunity to make getting beauty treatments like Botox, facials, and fillers a lot more pleasant than a trip to the doctor's office. But convincing her potential customers to change the way they view their medical aesthetic space and embrace her vision hasn't always been easy. I remember calling credit card companies and being like, can I put payroll on my personal credit card? Is that like a thing? Like I was, you know, it's like you have those dark moments where it was like, I don't know, we're going to make it to tomorrow. Find out how Nikki used her beauty experience to transform the way her customers view treatments, how she almost lost it all, and Alchemy 43's fast track expansion plans to dominate a brand new market category. Unfinished Biz starts now. You know, Wayne, one of the biggest themes coming out of beauty these days is just everyone's paramount concern on efficacy, whether that's going to be product related in terms of a lotion or even, you know, cosmetic procedures. They really want stuff that works and works right away. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that immediate gratification dynamic is really important. But then also making turning this into a fun experience. Going to a doctor's office really doesn't offer in the same the same way. Yep. Similar to getting your hair blown out at like a dry bar. Mm-hmm. And Nikki joined us at our VMG offices in LA to tell us a little bit more about how she's disrupting the med spa space. My entrepreneurial journey began um, probably when I started in the beauty industry in college. Um, it was a part-time job. I was at UC Davis um, okay. for undergrad, and I'd always loved makeup and cosmetics and needed you know, a way to make some extra cash during school mm-hmm. and got a job part-time at the Benefit Cosmetics counter at Macy's. Mm-hmm. And it was again, like something that I was doing just to make some extra side money, and it ended up kind of blossoming into this like really awesome opportunity where they um, they were a new company at the time. And I kept, you know, going back home for holidays. And then I studied abroad in London and they just kept hiring me in all these places. <laughs> oh, that's great. And they were like, well, great. You're going to be in London. Do you want to yeah. work for us at Selfridges? And I was right. like, sure. So it just ended up sort of being that like they saw something in me that, you know, from a very early age. And I feel like throughout my career, that's been a theme of just people seeing be like that. I have a I don't know if it's a unique way of doing things or just a point of view about things. But people have, you know, seen something in me that they've wanted to give me an opportunity to try something. And so I've kind of been able to run with that. Did you immediately start a company after that? Or what were some of the, the ways that you, you approached that journey from being at the being at Macy's to yeah. starting your own company? I think, um, so no, I didn't. Um, it was many years before I started my own company. Um, but I think it was always in the back of my mind that it was something I would do at some point. Um, I spent the early part of my 20s working in cosmetics and skincare. I worked for big brands um, like MAC Cosmetics and Nordstrom. Benefit mm-hmm. at the time was new. Um, and then I also, the last thing I did in the corporate cosmetics world was kind of a startup. Um, okay. It was a licensee. It was um, the guy, um, it was Mark Wins International. And basically yeah. um, he had licensed, his, he, his, his background was all in uh, mass market 
Market Cosmetics. And he wanted to get into luxury, prestige. And so he hired myself and a couple of veterans from LauderCorp to basically create a line from scratch with the Calvin Klein name on it. So, I mean, at age 25, I got to do everything from, you know, naming eyeshadows to being in the R&D lab testing formulas. It was literally like the equivalent. I mean, meeting with retailers, writing the training programs. So it was like the equivalent of starting my own company, but Mm -hmm. not with my own dime. So, (laughs) So it was, yeah, it was a very cool experience and very, um, you know, I think very enlightening for me and definitely kind of solidified that ultimately, you know, I would like to do my own thing. Um, but I felt like there was just more experiences for me to have before I was ready to do that. I wasn't sure what you yeah. know my thing was going to be. And so, um, you know, the obvious thing I think at the time would have been to start my own cosmetic line. Right. But I felt like, you know, I had a lot at that point of industry knowledge and I felt like the industry at that time was extremely saturated. There was mm-hmm. a lot of product out there, a lot of great products, a lot of brands that were wonderful but didn't make it. Right. And I felt like if, if and when I was going to do that, it would have to have a very specific point of view and a very specific sort of angle that was maybe not currently available in the space. And what year was that when you're starting to think about? That was like 2007, 2008. Okay. okay. Yeah. I was 16 at the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And then so, you know, and what, what led to actually taking that leap? I think a number of, of sort of factors, but really for me, um, you know, the impetus for starting this business was seeing the opportunity and really having that light bulb moment of seeing what was, in my opinion, extremely missing from the industry, extremely lacking, um, and and really understanding that my experience to date kind of led me to the path of being able to A, recognize that that void in the marketplace, and B, what needed to be done about it. And and using my experience from cosmetics and, and skincare and really applying that those best practices to um, to the medical aesthetic space were really that that to me yeah. was kind of it was like the every all the those worlds collided for me and I realized there was an opportunity. So you used the word void and missing. I'm on the edge of my seat. Mm-hmm. What, <laughs> what was what was missing or what void did you identify that you were trying to solve for that you saw while being at a beauty company? Sure. So basically, um, you know, like I mentioned, I you know worked in for a number of different cosmetics and skincare brands. And when you work in cosmetics, you know whatever you do in that space. I think everyone would agree that works in that industry. It's all about creating an experience for the customer. And whether that means, you know, telling them the story behind the ingredients that are in the products Mm -hmm. or telling them the story of the founder and how the founder came to develop this brand. I think there's an emotional connection that happens with um, when you're putting something on your skin and on your body and particularly on your face that um, it's just a way of connecting emotionally with the customer. And I think people are much more, I mean, I think we can see this in lots of industries. People are so connected to things that um, that they have an experience, an emotional experience right. with and yep. they, you know, loyal to brands where they feel that connection. And so um, I think that in this in this instance, you know, I grew up knowing that, you know, if you're trying to sell a product, you, you have to create that experience. And then in 2009, I jumped into medical aesthetics and I started working for Allergan, the makers of Botox. Yeah, uh-huh. And I stepped into that role really thinking that that was going to be an extension of the beauty industry. I mean, these treatments are cosmetic in nature. They're right. elective. There's totally. no, you know, we're not solving for an illness. Um, they're purely, you know, beauty, beauty driven, just like cosmetics. And what was so interesting is when I actually stepped into the role, outside of the fact that you look better after a Botox treatment and you look better after, you know, getting your makeup done, there was nothing nothing else similar about the industries and the experience of going to get Botox or going to get, you know, a filler treatment done was extremely clinical, extremely sterile, um, and extremely kind of un, it was not something you looked forward to doing. There was nothing about the experience that felt aspirational. Why was it that way? What was the, what's the typical background of a, you know, where people would go to 
get Botox. Sure. I mean, typically it takes place in a medical setting, yeah. um, typically a dermatology or plastic surgery uh, type of setting. There's also a lot of aesthetic practices and med spas out there as well. Um, but those places are rooted, you know, a lot of them have, you know, have a lot of different things that they do all rooted in clinical, you know, service. So, you know, in dermatology, you obviously have like skin cancer biopsies, acne treatment, uh, you know, amongst many other things that they do. In plastic surgery, you obviously have the surgical element of the business. And so, you know, typically those environments are kind of built around that type of experience. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, offering Botox and and fillers and injectables is sort of something that they also do, but it's not the main focus. And therefore it just kind of slots into the experience that you would get doing anything else. Does it have to be administered by a doctor? It has to be administered by a licensed medical professional. Okay. So RN and P and PA qualifies you as well. Got it. So you were at Allergan and how did you make that jump to, you know, thinking that, Hey, I actually want to start my own thing. So it happened pretty early on. I mean, I started doing that job and I realized, wow, like, you know, in this setting, people are spending thousands of dollars, you know, in my old life, it was hundreds of dollars. And, you know, there was just something so missing about the experience. I also thought that it was extremely fragmented and Mm -hmm. that there was, you know, a lot of places you could go and get these treatments. And clearly there was high demand for them. Um, But there was nothing, you know, there was no one brand that came to mind when you thought of getting these things done. And there was no sort of experts that only did that. And, you know, certainly there's wonderful, you know, know, injectors out there and wonderful, you know, people that do a great job. But I feel like no one was really that platform for like, this is what we do. And this is our artistry. And this is, you know, this technique driven. So I think that that was that was, you know, very clear to me, you know, very early on in in doing that job. And then in 2010, Drybar launched. And for me, that was a a sort of aha moment, because they took something that was part of a larger hairstyling experience. So Mm -hmm. when you go get your hair cut and colored, they blow dried at the end, and you leave looking great, right? right? And they extrapolated out only the blow dry, and they created a category around just that. And I thought, why can't we do that for injectables? Especially in a category where at least when you're doing, you know, when you're getting your hair done, it is experiential. It sounds like the way that you described sort of on the medical side of things, it just, it isn't experiential, right? right? Coming from a background of Mac or benefit. Yeah. It's totally, totally different. It's it's an errand that you have to run it to to do because you like the results and you want to do it, but in no way do you look forward to it. Right. And therefore I think, you know, think about all the other things that we have to do, getting our teeth cleaned at the dentist or things that we don't necessarily look forward to, but (laughs) we're like, ah, it's part of our routine. We got to do it. Um, I think, you know, you're certainly going to show up for that appointment, but you may not do it that often. You're definitely not looking forward to it. You're not, you know, I I don't, I think there was a lot of people that were considerers, but, but were, you know, very reluctant. I just think there was a ton of market opportunity with people that didn't have that experience um, and didn't have a plastic surgeon on speed dial, didn't know where to go, you know, felt, you know, felt a fear factor around, you know, just walking into any old place. And so really, that you know that expertise was something I think consumers were clearly looking for. So how did you start it? So um, gosh, it, when I think about it now, it was like <laughs> I don't even know how I'm sitting here. It's just like a lot of you know, just a lot of a series of, of random events and just really just like figuring out as I went, like there was no playbook that I followed or anything like that. I mean, I remember I, when I, so I had the idea when I was working for Allergan, I worked for Allergan from 2009 to 2012. Yep, uh-huh. And then, um, I, I had the idea I wanted to do this, but I didn't feel like I had enough tenure in the medical space because by then I really understood there was a re- strong regulatory component to all mm-hmm. of this. And I thought, you know, um, before I jump out of the gates and start doing this, I need to understand what what I'm actually up against right. here. And so I actually very consciously went to go work for two startups in the medical aesthetic space. I worked for two founders who were launching new products in this space. 
um, different types of things, but still in the same industry. And I learned so much from those like 12 months of doing that where um, that I was able to really kind of understand, okay, you know, I, I worked for this behemoth company, Allergan, you know, right. and now I understand what it would take to be a small guy and actually get this done. And so that's when I kind of decided to move forward. And I was able to support myself by independently repping some different medical um, yep. device products. Just mm-hmm. I had set up my own DBA and, you know, peddled these products around the city. In fact, this building that we're in today, there's a bunch of allergists that work in the building behind and I was selling a nasal inhaler product <laughs> and I used to take them all to lunch That's in funny. this building. Yeah. So um, anyway, so that was a lucky thing though, that I was able to kind of do that, you know, on the side while mm-hmm. I was developing this business idea. And I remember I was like, okay, I have to write a business plan. I have no idea where to start. I've never written a business plan. Right. And someone directed me to literally this like website. I don't know if it's still around. It was literally like businessplan.com. Yeah. Like my business plan builder. And it would just like <laughs> yeah. plug in this information and then it's it like would like generate. Yeah. yeah. It was fully like, I was just typing in answers to questions and it gave me like a graph and I was like, okay. Um, so I wrote this, you know, business plan, which I would sh- probably shudder to look at today. And then I, I basically invested all my own money in setting up the company. Right. So mm-hmm. I knew that because I'm not a doctor, you know, there's a, um, a specific way you have to set up a company if you're not the physician and you're owning a, me- a company that provides medical services. Oh. So I worked, um, it probably all in was about a year with a, with a prominent LA healthcare attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of where I invested all my own dollars. Um, and basically during the course of that, um, you know, I was trying to figure out what was going to happen next and how I was going to go out ra- and raise money. You know, I don't come from a wealthy family. I didn't have a, a dad or an uncle yeah. that could write me a check. <laughs> uh-huh. So it was really, you know, it was going to be up to me to make this happen. And I knew that there was, you know, it was going to be an expensive endeavor. We have to open brick and mortar stores right. and sign leases. So Did you open a store before you raised no, money? No, I raised. Or? I raised before raised I opened. Four. Okay. Yeah. Did you have a name? Um, it was, so about two months before I, I had a name originally and then I couldn't trademark it. Uh, so I had to, like was two it? months. It was going to be called Spruce, S P. R-O-O-S-E, like get spruced up, yeah, but it keeps okay. spelling. Yeah. And it turned out, you know, in the 11th hour, we, we got a response from the trademark uh, people and they said, right. sorry, you can't do it. There's a dermatology concept out of San Francisco called yeah. Spruce Health that, you know, <laughs> got is it. consumer confusion. Yeah. So I was under the gun. I'd already signed the lease for the yeah. first store. And I was like, <laughs> we're developing a website and we're like making signs and all the stuff and we don't have a name. And it was totally frantic. I'm sure people have been there. I mean, what's more important if you're developing a brand than the name of the brand, right. right? And I mean, I remember having like 100 names on a page and like nothing was clicking. I was just like, this is not it. This is not it. I mean, every name in the book, I had a bunch of people helping me. And one night I came home from dinner with friends and I logged into Facebook and someone had quoted The Alchemist, yeah. the book. Uh-huh. They had it like put a quote from there and I'm like, alchemy, alchemy, alchemy. And I had this like kind of like this moment and I typed into my Google browser, what is the definition of alchemy? And the answer was a seemingly magical process of combination, creation, and transformation. Um, and then the second definition was the study of chemistry that predated the periodic table that was concerned with changing base metals into gold. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I was like, that's Boom. my name. That's Boom. great. Yeah. yeah. And then I was talking to one of my early investors and she um, was you know, a great advisor to me. And she said, you know, there's a, I think that those names that have a number associated, um, like Refinery29, and there was a couple others, you know, they have a cool like cachet. Are there any numbers that are meaningful to you? And I was like, well, I don't know, like 17 is my lucky number. Is that the one? You know, we were just kind of <laughs> like, you know, and she typed into her phone how many muscles are in the face, and it was forty three. Oh, like, it's alchemy forty three. That's, That's great. What yeah. a great background. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool story name. But yeah. It, but yeah, it was literally the eleventh hour. 
And you started with one store? Yep. So I raised uh, about $700,000 to open the first store. Um, That opened in Beverly Hills in May of 2016. Uh Basically ran out of money uh, the first like two months that we were open. (laughs) Um, Got some, you know, got some advice that I sort of blindly followed. Um, I would say. Which was what? Just just in terms of the amount to, the right amount to raise and sort of, you know, setting up, you know, the expectation around how quickly people would, you know, how long it would take to get new customers in the door and what we would have to do. And we just didn't have like, you know, we didn't cover ourselves properly. And right. so as a result, you know, it was like the build out cost a lot more than what we had anticipated uh-huh. and, you know, all those things. And so that resulted in the first year just being like, I don't think I slept like oh, yeah. very much that first year at all. I remember calling credit card companies and being like, can I put payroll on my personal credit card? <laughs> right. Is that like a thing? Like yeah. I was, you know, it's like you have those dark moments where sure. it was like, I don't know, we're going to make it to tomorrow. Like it was a tough thing. Did you have a mentor at the time or a peer or someone that you were talking to? I mean, I would say I've, I had a lot of those and I've had a lot of I've been lucky and fortunate to have a lot of those over the you know over the years um and I think probably at that time I I had a lot of people giving me advice I was more listening to people that were giving me advice because I thought they had the experience Uh that I didn't have um and less listening to my gut and I think that's you know really that was a big learning I mean that first year was one of the tougher years I've ever had Mm -hmm. um but I'm so glad for it because it really did teach me like so much and I feel like because I was able to overcome that first year like nothing else is going to be that (laughs) intense again like what would you have done differently I think I would have listened to my gut more and I would have like been a little bit more confident in how well I understood what I was doing because I think what happened was I, you know, I came to this pretty mature. Like I, you know, I, I've had, a, I've had the careers before. It wasn't yeah. like, you know, so I, I had some, I had, I think I had the benefit of maturity. And so I think with that came like, I knew what my strengths were and my weaknesses were and like, like financial modeling and planning is not my area of expertise. And mm-hmm. so I left that to people who, you know, understood that better. But at the end of the day, no one knows your business as right. well as you do. And so right. no matter what projection somebody can make, yeah. you you have to be able to say, no, 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 it's not it's not yeah. it doesn't compute for me. Like yeah. it doesn't you know, I, I know what the story of this is going to be. And I'm like, I didn't trust in that enough that first year. I just sort of said, this person knows better than me. I'm just going to listen to what they say. And that got me in a lot of trouble the first year. You said the first year was really tough. So when did it really get going? So, I mean, luckily, so even though that year was crazy and I look back on it and kind of like, you know, just marvel that I got through it, we were able to prove out a lot of the metrics and a lot of the sort of hypotheses that we had had about how this mo- this business and this model would work and, and sort of who we would attract as a customer. And um, we were able to do that and well enough to attract a, a more sophisticated investor, and that was Forerunner Ventures. Mm-hmm. And so a, a year after we opened Beverly Hills, so March of 2017, a little less than a year, they they led around for me. They did two point five million. They led. Well, it was a two point five million dollar round that they led, mm-hmm. and that was a really game changing moment, which I know we'll talk about a little bit more. But mm-hmm. and that at that time, there was one store, one location, one and how, location. And how did that come? How did you meet each other? And so that was a fascinating process, and I'm sure a lot of people who have who've been through this can relate. I remember being. I mean, I was so naive. I'd never done anything like this before, and I I kept getting introduced to investors through other founders I was meeting, or right. through you know inv- investors that I already knew. And at first, I thought, and it was so funny because I would be talking to like an, a firm or an investor, and they would be like, you know, I've got to introduce you to my friend so and so, and I couldn't figure out if they were like passing me off and right. being like, well, we don't want this, but they might. Right. But then it was like they're good friends. They're like, oh, we always co-invest together. And I, and I remember thinking like, how nice. Like people are so <laughs> nice in this industry. They're yeah. so kind. And someone said to me, no, 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 it's not, it's not so much about being kind, although that's 
nice thought. It's about <laughs> the fact that people want this like, you know, idea. They want their their interest in this to be validated by somebody else that they, right. you know, it's like in this there's industry. A, it's a bit of a herd mentality. Yes, and, they're, 100%. And, they're, and they're seeing if people will form a herd. Exactly. Yeah. And I just yeah. thought, oh my gosh, it's so nice that he took time out of his day to introduce me to somebody else. <laughs> so kind. Like, I just remember thinking that it was like so generous of right. people. And really it was kind of like, you know, maybe, you know, it, the end result was fine, the same, but it so was. So you ended up meeting them through a, a series people. of, of, yeah. of, uh, introductions. Yep. And interestingly enough, I think, and I actually haven't ever chatted about this with them, I don't think, um, I I had cold emailed them. I'd heard about them and they were like, you know, obviously such a well-known, well-respected firm. They'd made mm-hmm. some amazing bets and I felt like I'd be a great bet for them. Uh-huh. Um, and I ran, I went on their website and cold emailed them and never got a response. Or maybe I even got a response that was like, no thanks. Uh-huh. And it was not until another investor introduced me that they wanted to have the conversation. So another kind of bit of advice for, you know, for founders out there, if, you, if somebody, there's a connection and somebody that can introduce you that's always going to be the best that's way huge so how did yeah. you and forerunner align on what the business model was going to be going forward i mean they typically are part of you know quote unquote, tech enabled mm-hmm. type of businesses yep. and you have a one store location how yep. did how did that all align i think what it came down to is that they really got it like i remember at that time i'd been talking to a bunch of different firms and i'd actually the day i spoke with kirsten I had uh, spoken with another firm earlier that day and I remember, you know, you can tell when someone's just not clicking with it, they're just not getting it. It was the most, it was one of those conversations where he, I think he was like, why am I having this conversation? And (laughs) I was like, why am I talking to this (laughs) man? Like it was just not clear. And then the minute I got on the phone with them, they were kind of like immediately like, hey, we get it and we love this. We think that there's a massive opportunity here. And I think from the beginning, it was almost, I got the feeling that they were kind of like, we're, we're sold on the concept, Mm -hmm. but we need to be sold on you. So like, you know, are you the right person to do this? And right. that was kind of a lot of what those conversations looked like. And what was the vision that you all aligned on? So, so it was basically, so walk us through that. Sure. I mean, so the idea was and is to completely reimagine the way that these services are consumed and really align them more as a, you know, a beauty service and a self-care um, experience rather than a sort of dry, sterile medical experience. Um, there is such an artistry to the way that these treatments are performed and consumed and, and you know, there's such a technique to it that it really bears having its own category. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was really about taking something that was, you know, a largely fragmented service and creating a category around that and and largely owning that category, really owning the customer mind share when it comes to oh, I want to get a facial injectable or I think I'm ready to start some preventative Botox, Alchemy 43. Mm-hmm. And so really creating that place because to date it hasn't existed. And what, what would be the number one objection of why a consumer would, a consumer's clearly chosen to go down this more clinical path. Sure. What's been the number one objection you found on trying to convert a consumer or drive a new consumer to Alchemy 43? I think it's it's kind of what you said. It's I think the number one, the number one, I think, piece of pushback we would get and it would this would particularly probably be from an existing user um is you know i like to go to dr so and so i've been seeing this doctor for many years and you know i like the idea that i'm going to a board certified physician for this service um you know it is a needle in your face and there's no you know through this experience in no way are we trying to trivialize that and make it into we're not saying it's the same as a manicure we're not saying it's the same as getting your blow dry done it's it's a medical service Right. right but we believe that it can be performed and done in a way that still that still honors that but is in a much more elevated sophisticated elegant setting right and with a professional who actually focuses on exactly this, right? it's, and it's, it's not a core competency this. exactly yeah 100 exactly. percent. 
And where's the business today? So since, you know, Kirsten and Forerunner invested with one store, two and a half million, what did you do with those funds? And what does the business look like today? Basically that, I mean, that was a really big turning point for us as a brand. Um, Obviously the plan, maybe not obviously, the plan was to open up more additional locations and to start to build out the team, to start to get a little bit more sophisticated in, you know, how we were acquiring a customer. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first thing we did, and this was kind of at Forerunner's request or suggestion, um, was that... That, you know, one of the big learning things I had from the first year was that the um, client that, that came in to see us, that early adopter yep. client, was by and large a new user. So my vision for this brand has always been to grow the market and mm-hmm. really create a place for people that maybe haven't had a place to go, um, you know, give them a place to go and really t- like the responsibility of like holding their hand through because right. these treatments that we do are all repetitive. You do them for the rest of your life. If you yeah. like the result, you've got to keep doing it. So right. it's more it was more about not stealing share, more about expanding the pot. Yeah. Okay. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. But I, I still thought, and, and I remember when I was pitching early investors, that I still thought that the, the first person that would come in would be the existing disgruntled uh-huh. user right. who, you know, just hadn't been happy and hadn't been, you know, maybe had a hard time getting appointments at the place they right. go to, you know, and were, was looking for something new. And I really thought that would be our early adopter. So even like the early marketing things that we did, I mean, you know, as little as we did, we I was so nervous to alienate, you know, the existing Botox user, namely a woman between 35 and 45. Mm-hmm. And so all of our like, you know, original like photos and all of that and all of the collateral was very much, you know, targeting and speaking to that 35 to 45 year old woman. Yeah. We didn't want to have a 21 year old girl, you know, on our flyer that, you know, sort of made those people feel like right. what, what's this company doing. But what, what was funny is that was who our customer was. Yeah. So that was our big learning from the first year. It was like, wow, that actually is our customer mm-hmm. and we need to start talking to her. Mm-hmm. And so we did a whole brand refresh and that was where a lot of that, um, you know, two point five million dollar went um, mm-hmm. that initial investment went was to kind of you know creating the brand that we are today which is you know really a kind of millennial also inclusive of every of, of, of male users we have a big population of male users as well and just a, a really inclusive kind of approach to it um, and just modern and fun and mm-hmm. you know not taking itself so seriously we're still kind of evolving you know what all of that looks like but um, that was kind of the initial use of funds and then into that was 2017 okay. to 2018 we raised another uh, two, 2.5 million dollar round that was mostly internal investors um, we had one new investor join at that point and then that was we opened three stores in 2018. So 2018, we went from one to four. Okay. Those were all in Los Angeles. Okay. So so we really, you know, we, we decided internally that we liked the idea of sort of a cluster approach to opening markets. Yeah. Um, we felt like there was economies of scale around advertising and marketing, around, you know, labor and staffing. We could, you know, if we needed to, we could move staff from one location to another. You know, we could train them all in one place. So there was, a, we felt, see a lot of upside to that and we continue to, to see that and kind of believe in that rather than opening four stores in four you know, completely disjointed markets, we thought, let's really own the LA market. And and what was the learning from expanding from one to four? Oh, it was crazy. I think, (laughs) I mean, the learning was really around kind of the real estate piece of it was that, you know, to some degree, you can control how fast these things move. But when you're signing a lease and it's brick and mortar and there's permitting involved in city right. officials, yeah. you have to know that, you know, you may be thinking you're going to open a store in two months. It may be more like five. Right. Yeah. Like it and for, for reasons that you have no control over. So you just have to plan. You know, or, or, I remember someone gave me some advice and just basically said you can, you know, 
the way you want to approach it is kind of give give it a six month cushion. Like mm-hmm. it could be anywhere from one to six months to right. open a store, right. you know, and then and then you kind of operate, you kind of work from there as opposed to being like, oh gosh, this is two months later than I thought, and freak out every time because there's you know you can do everything right and there's still things that can come up that that hold you up. And how was the revenue ramp up? At these stores, so I think that you know we definitely saw the benefit of being in a market where we already we already had a name for ourselves. Yeah. I think that that was that was great. Um, each store ramped faster than the last, which was great. Um, so each store took shape, you know, more and more quickly, and um, which we've continued to see. You know, we got smarter with each opening as well um, in terms of how we decided to open the stores and what we did to launch them. Um, I remember with our West Hollywood store, um, that was that was delayed in terms of the opening, and so right. we had already hired people and we were ready to go, but the store was delayed because of permitting. Stuff. Stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we had to get really creative with, okay, what do we do? We don't want to lose two months of revenue because we'd already, right. been, we were already paying rent at that right. point. So we did a series of pop-ups. So we went into the neighborhood and said, Hey, Equinox, Hey, Blushington, Hey, um, Zadig and Voltaire next right. door. Uh-huh. We want to do a pop-up in your yeah. shop. And, and so that ended up being a great way to kind of get some exposure yeah. and build awareness and, you know, get a little bit of revenue yeah. in the door as well. And then what, what type of four wall economics are you targeting now that you've been able to refine the model? So, I mean, basically it costs us about $300,000 to build, build out a store. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, right now we're doing like seven to 800,000 in the first 12 months. Okay. Um, we expect that number to improve as there's more awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, we opened, um, sorry, I didn't tell you this. We opened our New York store in April of this year. Oh, so okay. we did open our first, uh, so our second five. new market. Yeah. Uh, yes. Our fifth store opening, uh-huh. and that store is doing incredibly well, and it's ramped faster than all these statistics that I'm telling yeah. you. But it did also cost a little more to build out because it's New York City. Yeah, that one's in Flatiron. It's in Flatiron. Yeah, yep, cool. exactly. So um, that store is doing really great, and um, so yeah, these stores are doing seven to eight hundred thousand in the first twelve months. They're doing one point two to one point five million in the second twelve months. Mm-hmm. And their cash flow positive from a contribution margin standpoint at about month eight or month nine. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then by about month 18, we've paid off the build out. Is it difficult to actually recruit um, medical professionals? So um, at this stage, it's not. It mm-hmm. will become so. Um, we have a very aggressive growth plan in front of us. We want to open 50 stores U.S. We want to be in, um, in, what in time the next frame? five years. Okay. Yep. yep. And we want to be in every major kind of metro market in the country and everywhere where you would go to consume, you know, your beauty services or, or your, you know, boutique fitness concepts, all of that kind of stuff. So when, when you want to scale at that level and you want to open that many new stores, um, recruiting medical professionals does become, uh, you know, in something of a task. And I think... Um, for us, what we've um, talked about since the beginning is creating uh, our own pipeline for these mm-hmm. people. So there's a lot of in the in the medical space. Um, there's a lot of people that want to get into this into cosmetic medicine, uh, but right now the way it's set up, it's really difficult to do. So you can take you can pay for a, you know a weekend training course and learn how to do it yourself, but then you're spending your own money to do that, mm-hmm. and no one's going to hire you because you don't have hands-on experience. <laughs> right. yeah. So it's kind of that cart before the horse thing. Uh-huh. So people, there's many many people that want to get into this industry that um, that don't have a way in or or a way to learn. So we want to create that. So basically Alchemy Academy will be a place where you can come and learn how to inject and learn, you know, as a licensed medical professional, learn all of the technique around, you know, delivering an awesome, you know, an awesome result and an awesome cosmetic injectable service. And initially we'll use that as a pipeline for our own, you know, people as we grow. And then potentially there's an opportunity to actually make that, you know, readily available to anyone who wants to learn in the future. And that can be a revenue stream. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Nikki Levy. 
Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. Subscribe for free on the podcast app of your choice and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page and we'll keep you updated on everything that's new. And if you love the show, a five-star iTunes review is a great way to let us know. But now, let's get back to our episode with Alchemy43 founder and CEO, Nikki Levy. So at this point, has there been a bet the company moment? So I think that there's been a lot of those. Um, <laughs> I think that that's kind of been, you know, for, for me personally, I mean, I, you know, decided probably fairly early on that this was like, I was going to put everything I, I am into this. And mm-hmm. so, you know, in terms of other investments or any diversity, like I'm all in on this business. Yeah. I mean, it's literally like, I'm not a gambler, but I, I often have this like picture in my head of myself, like taking all my chips on the table. and <laughs> pushing them in. Right. All right. That's I'm good. here. And I think like, I don't know, I, I, I really take the, the fact that I've, that other people have put their money and invested their money into me almost more to heart. And I don't know if a lot of people, I'm really not trying to sound like a martyr when I say this, but like if someone gives me a check to like make this company happen, like there's a sense of responsibility that I have that's even greater than if it was just me doing it by myself. Like it's like, I feel a really strong just desire to succeed for all the people that have believed in me along the way. And so, you know, I do feel like every day is about the company moment for me. (laughs) Truly. Well, it sounds like it's been a, been a great ride date. Is, Is there a particular high point? Um, I think there's been a lot of high points, a lot of great moments. Um, I think, you know, two that pop into mind the most are, are when Forerunner uh, first came on board. I mm-hmm. felt like they were such a well-known company that had taken, you know, bets on such, you know, iconic consumer brands. For sure. And when, you know, I, I really thought, you know, I really have something with this and I was in it every day, you know, plugging away and thinking, yeah. gosh, you know, the response to this is amazing. Mm-hmm. People are coming in and saying, gosh, why hasn't somebody thought of this sooner? This is fantastic. And to have Kirsten Green, who has a reputation for just really identifying what the next big thing is, mm-hmm. kind of look at this and go, yes, this is the next big thing. It was a real, like a real moment of validation for me where I was like, wow, I think I, I it's confirmed. I'm, on I'm onto something, something. Yeah. here. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So that was really a moment. And, you know, I think that was definitely a high point where I was like, you know, especially after that first year where I was like, you know, you know. have all the highs and lows and it was like for someone to go, nope, you're on the right track. Right. It was, it was the right, it was what I needed. So that was great. And then I think the second was opening the New York market. Um, that was huge for me. I have, I've never lived in New York city. Um, obviously it's such a, you know, it's such a, a place, you know, it's yeah. such a, <laughs> such an amazing place. And mm-hmm. I think where, you know, so many brands started and, and so many amazing brands live. And so I think when we opened that store for me being, you know, a girl from Southern California who hasn't spent a lot of time in New York mm-hmm. and didn't kind of know what to expect. It's obviously on the other side of the country. Yeah. It was a moment. And, um, and I was like, wow, we're really on our way. We're a national company and this is happening. Is there a particular low point um, that really stands out in your mind? Yeah, there was a moment in that first year. I talked about having, you know, a lot of financial struggles that first year. There was a moment where I went to my investors and said, hey guys, like, um, we're really in trouble here and we've got like a month left mm-hmm. kind of thing. And w- there was like very little option and they had just, I think had just started raising another fund. So they uh-huh. literally right. weren't in a position. Yeah. Leslie personally had to come in and I ended up having to take out a shark loan um, because, you know, in the early days of owning a business, yeah. no one will extend yeah. you any kind of credit. It's totally. like only when you don't need How the do money. How do you find a shark loan? So, th- so this investor introduced me to this guy who does shark loans for like small business entrepreneurs. And I think the shark loan was... I kind of want to say like 25,000 or 30,000. Yeah. It might have been more. And it was the most obscene like um, interest rate ever. I mean, I think it was like 
fifty percent. It was like something like insane, a pay, like a payday loan, a thousand percent. It was right. literally like a payday loan. Like I don't even know, but I had no choice. Like right. I had to take it out, and it was you know it was short term. It ended up working out, but mm-hmm. I remember going, "What the hell am I doing?" Like I drove to this like office park to meet this guy, and it's like a shark loan guy, and like, you know, it's like just the payback. The whole thing was just so bad. Like it was like no one in their right mind would do this, right? But I had to do it to get through a couple more months, and it ended up working out. But it was like. I mean, that's, that's an example of like, and I, and I, by the way, had to personally guarantee, guarantee that it. or what, you know, whatever it was, it was like, you know, yeah. it, maybe it was more than 25,000. I don't remember the exact amount, but it was like very much kind of going, well, you know, if this doesn't work, I mean, I'm going to sleep on my dad's couch and right. I'm going to go work at Nordstrom again, you know, and having that kind of moment. Um, yeah. And it was like, I had to do it. That must've been daunting. I know. It's terrifying. So, but, but now looking back, it's all smiles. Yeah. Anything that's keeping you up at night? So, yeah, I think for me, the thing that, that keeps me up at night is, is really kind of um, how do we, as we scale, maintain the the high quality of customer experience? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of brands that I really kind of look to and have in a lot of ways modeled this idea after, you know, I've seen as they've grown, a lot of the quality of the service has gone down. And I, right. I recognize it's so hard when yeah. you have, a, you know, a bunch of stores to keep everything. And especially with something as delicate as injectables. I mean, mm-hmm. this is like your face, it's needles. Like how do we make sure that like what we're doing now every day with four stores is going to be the same and and better when we have 50 stores? Like right. how do we right. do that and what does that involve and what will that entail? So that's the kind of stuff and I know the answer is team and people and you know all of that and you know I want to find those people and make sure we do that because to me that, you know, you don't have a future if you don't deliver on what you set out to deliver. Well, Robin, we have a first. We have not had an entrepreneur that told us a loan shark story like this before. Not a loan shark. That's true. (laughs) Where they're driving a car into a shady parking lot to get a like a payday loan in order to basically fund the rest of their business. It's incredible. I mean, it says a lot that she was able to pull out of that situation, pay it all back. I mean, she's so ambitious. At this point, she's got five stores on her way to 50. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, to get to 50, you really got to get outside the coast. And I think it's going to be interesting at the at minimum just to see kind of how, how she'll continue to have to pivot her business model to make sure that it's applicable in all these different markets that you'll inevitably have to enter into. For sure. And then speaking of ambitious, she likes to take on really tough projects, including hand-making probably the toughest pastry that you could make. And you're going to hear it right now. Pop-tarts? I don't know. We'll find (laughs) out. I actually like to cook and bake quite a bit. I took a croissant making class recently. That's oh. got to be complicated. Uh, yeah, it so how really many, is. I have how, many, how many folds do you need in a croissant? A lot and a, a lot. shitload of butter. <laughs> like so much butter. Does it, it does it make you feel like, oh wait, I'm never going to eat another croissant? Yes. And also I want to like high five anyone who makes croissants on a regular basis. It's like a lot of work. Uh, it's super intense. Looks insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we know who to call if we want Botox or how to make a croissant. Exactly. There you go. There you, I'm your girl. <laughs> Are you ready for our signature game yes i'm here our rapid fire game 60 seconds only ready yep let's do it do you have any funny nicknames my friend calls me five what was the last time you wore a costume for halloween Mm, three years ago most used app on your phone ways go-to karaoke song pour some sugar on me (laughs) nice (laughs) who inspires you oprah nice (laughs) weirdest (laughs) job you've ever had um, I worked at a uh, miniature golf um, amusement park in Irvine called Palace Park. Who or what makes you laugh? Uh, I like Amy Schumer. Any hidden towns? I'm double jointed. <laughs> Last concert you went to? <laughs> Erica Badu. 
at the Hollywood Bowl. Favorite meal of the day? Breakfast. Did you get detention for anything in high school? Mm, Probably talking too much. (laughs) What's your preferred method of exercise? I like working with a trainer, like circuit training. Do you have any collections? Makeup. Uh, Favorite card game? Um, Gin rummy. Where in the world do you feel most at home? Mm, Right here in LA. La La Land. Go to coffee bean order. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Just a drip, a regular drip coffee, medium roast. Do you talk to strangers on airplanes? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, last question. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? I think my advice would be if you have something you want to do and something that you feel like, you know, solves a problem in in society, do it. Just go for it. Like, don't think too much about the detail. Don't let the all the things that could go wrong hold you up. Just go for it because, you know, you'll learn as you go. You'll find you'll meet people on the way that will help guide you on their path. And I just think the world needs more risk takers. Nikki says says right there, just do it. I think I've heard that before. (laughs) Never. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thanks for having me. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any events. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.